Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the GM Studio, a podcast all about the tabletop RPG hobby centered mostly for the game masters, but the players come in and listen anyway. I am your host, Matt. I am David. And today we have a little bit of our usuals. We've got community questions. We've got our main topic, which is when and how to use the rule of cool. But to start off, uh, I do have some things I want to talk about the game, our Curse of Strahd game that we had, especially as we are getting into the uh, the spooky season. Uh, at the time of this recording, it is the middle of October. So we uh trying to get a little bit, I'm trying to do a little bit to get uh, into the mood of a little bit more of the darker and uh, more of the horror side of Curse of Strahd with everybody. Uh, just kind of having like bringing in that dour feel like I saw you, or I witnessed you doing with a really getting into the Barovians mm -hmm. uh, in the town. Just a very dark gray. Everybody's downtrodden. So are you trying to get into that mood as well, Dave? Well, this week I actually. Uh, also, what you talking about? Middle man. It's the end of October now. <laughs> um, is it? Oh, 23rd Jesus. today, Matt. Oh, God damn it. Um, it is. No, uh, this week I felt like kind of last week was a lot of role playing. And while I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of inject a little bit of flavor, uh, I kind of wanted to get on with pushing the plot forward. So I think that I probably scaled back on um, some economy of description and mood setting. I probably could have done better about setting the mood a little bit when you guys got to the, the pass or whatever. But I really wanted to kind of get underway with like, some action because i feel like if we do too much role playing like last week was almost all role playing there was a little bit of a chase mm -hmm. sequence in there but mostly all role playing and then i had like a another role playing encounter with kind of arena and stuff in there and a little bit with the guy down at the vistani camp and i find that the fucking technical issues are starting to really hamper like having in-game dialogue like especially with fucking mm -hmm. patrick and chris um and, and it's neither of their faults but it's just i find myself wanting to kind of just paraphrase and gloss over what i otherwise might have be a little bit of a more in dialogue role-playing encounter um so that's just the nature of playing online but i i always try to inject a little bit of the mood and theme of uh the barovian world so i try to occasionally lighten things up with a little bit of a bright spot of something magnificent and wonderful or somebody doing some act of moral courage or um you know tordek is a good vehicle for that because he tells jokes so it kind of lightens the mm. mood uh, <laughs> because i never know like how the mood comes off like if it is as dark and bleak as every, like as the environment communicates if that mood comes through or not. I, I use a variety of things. I try to talk about the decay of the world and try to talk about, uh, make things visually dark, like constantly. I really wish that the players, uh, one of my favorite tactics in a horror game, if you're trying to kind of just set tension and mood, is to use darkness as best you can, uh, mm -hmm. having the players 
lantern run on oil, having a, a breeze blow their torch out. But when you have light spells and stuff like that, it, or dark vision, it doesn't really have the same effect. So that kind of is a missed opportunity. But, but that said, I thought the game went pretty well last night. I, we tried to do a little bit of character development stuff. I thought that you were probably a pretty, you and Beto were a little more keen on that. Uh, Mike was strangely kind of quiet. I think I might need to kind of pull him back in with a little bit more of the spirit of his Shogun. Kind mm -hmm. of, he was a little more engaged during the Ark and Vestal leg of the adventure leading up to it. But now I feel like uh, the sense is that that kind of shot its load a little bit and he's just kind of along for the ride again. So I kind of want to try to engage him a little more. I'm always trying to engage Patrick more um, because I think that there's a lot of fertile ground for his character in this environment, but he isn't always as game for that. So I don't know. Did you, did you feel like the mood was good or did you feel like it was more plot oriented? Yeah. I think because we started the game back in Valaki mm -hmm. right after big turmoil with the, uh, the, the party, yeah. uh, that you really started to press the flesh on the darkness and the dourness in Valaki, like right away. Like as soon as we went downstairs, you know, you were talking about Danica who is still just dark and drab and this and that. And Irina was already just down in the dumps and just looked more brooding than ever. And then uh, even with the, uh, the dusk elf guy, even though you got to show the little picture of him, you really pushed into it. And uh, I think that fed me, because I was, as I was going around and talking with everybody, I talked about, you know, how shit the world is right now and how dark it is. And it's all Strahd's fault. And I'm trying to be that, that candlelight in the darkness that's trying to grow ever brighter. And I, I wanted to kind of put that into the mood that that's kind of our job, but still have that dour persona. Yeah, I think that kind of came through. It's always interesting when you introduce a new character uh, because you can use that character as kind of a vehicle to kind of speak to the other characters to get them kind of talking about how they're feeling or what their motives are, goals and stuff like that, because this character doesn't know them. And so I tried to use that as a little bit of a vehicle and while simultaneously acknowledging that we're at the point in the plot when there is inter-party conflict. Like this is a mm -hmm. thing that happens pretty much in any group piece of art, right? Movies and books. So there's a group of people and at some point they have something that tests the, the tensile strength of their connections between each other. And so we're at that point and that can be kind of like, you know, the darkest hour situation that the characters need to overcome in order to have the catharsis of overcoming the big challenges, because if they can overcome these interpersonal conflicts, then they are more poised to overcome external conflicts. And so I tried to play that up as much as I could. Like, you know, it was, you know, the, the parties, the tenor of the group cohesion kind of meet the world mirrored it right like and so when the party mm. is you know kicking ass and taking names then the then the world kind of mirrors or that around it and when it's not when it's kind of down and out um i i try to have the the world mirror that i i, I kind of was like what's, what's the way i can have this manifest independent of like the world around them and so i was like okay so like you guys are you know it's been a while since you bathed or shower or clean your armor so you're like kind of like grimy and whatever and 
let's like take that like minor thing and, and see if we can get the party to be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to kind of spruce myself up. And it's like, you know, quite literal, like brushing myself off, brushing the dust off of myself, which is kind of happening in a metaphorical way too. The, the party has fallen on its face. There is divisiveness. And now you're picking yourself up and you're dusting yourself off to go meet this new, big, mysterious challenge. And so I kind of wanted to try to figure out there are some ways in which I could have that manifest in the actual world. Yeah. And as we got closer to the Amber Temple, well, especially when we got to the gates of the Amber Temple there, I think we need to push into, because like we just dove into that fight with the Vrox. Right. And holy shit, dude, I was like two hits and I was almost done. Yeah. Like I was very close to falling unconscious and possibly dying because those things had a lot of AOE attacks, yeah. <laughs> which I would have just taken. But uh, I don't know what happened. You started describing the gates of uh, of the Amber Temple. And I just like almost got lost in your description and I could just start seeing this is all about how well you were doing. Cause I could just start seeing like the, the weird sludge and shit coming off down the pillars and then the statues of the frocks on top. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, I don't actually know if I listened to what Dave said, but I got a really good visual. <laughs> well, that's cool. Of what I mean, you were saying. It's a, yeah, that's a, cause this is kind of a waypoint, right? The Slanka pass is actually, you have about another hour of travel before you actually arrive at the Amber temple. This is like a waylay point. I really, we're very close. We were very close to what I think is going to, would have been a very good cliffhanger, but there's also other, you know, there's other, two other structures that are here that you, I wasn't sure if you were going to investigate them. And if you were investigating them, you wouldn't have got to like a cliffhanger. So I just kind of cut it short. We already ran long. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to, the Amber temple is a fucking, it's not an easy dungeon crawl to run. It's got a lot of moving parts to it. And so I need, that's why I was asking you whether you thought we would get to it because I was like, man, yeah. if we're like, I got to brush up on what's where and who's doing what, and how do I take every opportunity to establish mood? Because this is a big, uh, like culmination, right? Like your guys party is, is level eight now. And so this is likely to be the most challenging thing that you have come across to this point beyond Curse of, like, beyond, like, Castle Ravenloft. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you're getting to kind of be mid-tier now, like, getting into that mid-second tier where you're going to be approaching, you know, 10th level or, or so. And so... There's going to be a shift, as you notice, like the, the quality of enemies that you're going to face are going to be more time. going to test your wherewithal a little bit more. And some of that was just the luck of the dice, right? Like you yeah. just happened to get hit right out of the gate. With a crit. Right. The first attack was a crit. Yeah. It was like, so that you got hit and you, but I mean, the rest of the party is relatively healthy. No one else really took yeah. a lot of damage. And, and I, I did kind of fuck up too. I think the battle would have been a little more challenging if I had remembered they could advantage on uh, saving throws against magic and shit. Mm. I'm sure some of them, they still would have failed, but like with the spirit guardians, I think you, but I also did get lucky and summon another one of the creatures, which was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we'll, 
get more into it. And I can, now that I know that the trajectory of likely the next few sessions, I can kind of really make sure that I'm infusing it with as much mood as possible, because I think that this particular leg calls out for a lot of mood. I felt like Arjun Vestolt had a lot of mood. Um, and then the previous kind of ish situations with that probably didn't quite have as much, um, but you know, you can only devote so much time to, to building that as, uh, as part of the thesis of the adventure, cause you want to, you do want to get on to the plot points. So, but overall yeah. I thought it went well. I'm, I'm kind of excited. Like if we're going to have, you know, a week off and so I'll be hopefully like fully prepped and, and dialed in with every aspect. Um, I spent like a whole bunch of time going over stuff and opening like every tab that I thought I might need so that it was like <laughs> easy reference. And then my computer was like reloaded the page and it closes all the tabs when you do that. Yeah. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> like, but yeah. And if one thing that really helped me out, cause the last couple of sessions, I felt like I was not as engaged cause I was so fucking tired, mm -hmm. but I took a bunch of little naps throughout the day yesterday. Cause here's one thing. Uh, good listeners. If you don't know, I live in Michigan. Another player lives in Florida. And then Dave, two other players live in California and one is in Vegas. Yeah. So the time when I, when I, when the game starts for me, it's 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. And then we, we only play for what, like, well, we play for four hours, four hours, yeah. but still by the time, usually by the time midnight 30 rolls around, I'm almost checked out. Yeah. yeah. But this time I got, I got lots of sleep and I was, I felt like I was really into it. Well, you're, you're, you've been more engaged because I think you took to heart what I said about like the other players kind of perceiving you as like, not, you know, like, oh, Matt doesn't really seem like he cares like what's happening. I'm like, he's just trying to push the adventure along because he knows that there's a lot of indecisiveness. And it seemed like you kind of took that to heart and trying to be a little more engaged. I, and I think it's actually showing mm -hmm. that your character is, is kind of growing into his leadership role where he was kind of more of yeah. a reluctant leader. And now he's, there's been a few instances like this, not this session, but the last session where it was like, your hand was forced to like play the leader guy card, Yeah, right? You had, you had one character that wanted to kill another character and you had to like put your foot down. And I think that that is, um, kind of starting to show that your character is gaining levels and experience and like his charisma usually is born out of being kind of the kind of guy that makes people feel comfortable and is, is likable, but that the whole as you gain levels and sophistication and experience that your charisma needs to reflect too, that you can be assertive and, and decisive and put your foot down occasionally. And that's what gets the respect of your, your party members and stuff like that. So that, that's a good character. Yeah, that arc. was one thing when I decided to do that pull rank, I actually thought about it. I was like, Oh, I shouldn't do that. That's just going to make things worse. But then I thought, you know what, this could actually help feed, feed into the discourse that's going on. Like all of a sudden, Alistair is just like, no, you made me fucking leader. You're going to listen to what I say. Is this really what they wanted in him in that role? And I just thought, okay, you know, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to see what happens. Well, especially too, because you have to think in terms of like Patrick's character. He's likely the kind of character that actually respects you, like showing a, showing strength there. If you had allowed mm. him to kill Elros's character, Beto had to play somebody else, play Tordek's character or something like that. Then in a very real way, 
the rest of the party is likely to be like, okay, well, he just kind of got his way. And like Patrick is a charismatic character too, for very different reasons. And maybe, maybe there would be, I I've always been interested in that. Like you're not super keen on being the leader, or at least you previously haven't been. Mm -hmm. And Patrick is definitely not keen on being leader, but he definitely has like, this is the way I want things to go. Yeah. And the realization that like, if I were leader of the party and everyone treated me, I could just do whatever I want. <laughs> and like, I've always been interested in that. And Patrick doesn't really seem to be taking the bait as much. Um, but yeah, you know, if you had allowed him to kill Beto's character, then I think that there would have been kind of a shift in that regard where maybe Patrick would have kind of ended up as the de facto leader because it would have undermined your authority. Um, but all's well that ends well. And now I think that his character is likely to kind of view you as like, oh, maybe this guy does have a fucking pair on him and, and can put yeah. his foot down. And, and you again, tried to smooth things over and be like, Hey man, like I'm with you. Like I'm suspicious too, but you know, this is an issue of practicality. We need all the, the resources and help we can get. Um, which didn't really jive with like leaving Tordek behind, but Hey, whatever, you know, made my life easier. So I was happy oh. about it. <laughs> um, yeah, that I am trying to, I didn't want to just spread people out too thin, but I did want people to break off yeah. so that there could be a couple scenes with some people on their own. Yeah. And then, you know, me going off with, that's why I was like me and El Rose will go and deal with dusk elves while you guys go and talk to Ismark. Yada, yada. Cause I was hoping that we could, I want to try to put these guys in their own little scene so I can get a little bit something to work with. Sure. I, uh, I see that, but I also think that the, all of them kind of deciding like, yeah, you know, we're going to go too. actually showed that you like made a good decision for the party and yeah. that they're like standing behind you and they're like, okay, we're all in this together now. And we're all pulling the cart in the same direction. And so while, yeah, you could have had some interesting role-playing opportunities to kind of get the other characters to come out of their shells a little bit, like interact with people in a way or whatever. Um, I think the alternative just showed that, that that party after this riff that the party has already begun repairing its, its relationships with one another. I agree. I saw that, uh, as it was happening, I kind of had that feeling. I didn't come to the conclusion as much as you did, but I had that feeling. Yeah, but good. enough about enough jerking off our game. Uh, so, how about we get to some community questions? Oh, our game is so good. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I got to die right here. I'm going to die. All right. I'll ride or die. Table of 1D20 uh, questions from the community. 18. 18. All right. Let's see here. 18. Okay. I thought this one was a good one to talk about because I get this a lot recently of people trying to get into role-playing. This came from Joel. Uh, what is role-playing and where do I start? I've been told that role-playing is great fun. I've looked, in, I've looked and looked and it all seems so complicated. Could anyone tell me a good place to start and what sort of things you end up doing in role-playing? It was a very just, a, it's a very short question that is very broad at the same time. But it's a big question that's being asked a lot these days, especially with the the hobby growing as much as it is. People are now hearing like movie stars are coming out saying, oh, I love Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I love role playing games. And of course, everybody around is fucking I mean, D&D &D is fucking everywhere now. 
And they're just like, well, what is it? Is it a board game? Is it this? Is it this? So I know people that are listening to this are obviously probably into the hobby already, but I thought it is a good question to kind of, what do we consider role-playing games? Well, questions like this actually kind of occasionally force you to kind of get back to basics and assess really what the appeal of something is. Uh, I tell people this with writing all the time when I try to help them write is sometimes you need to get back to your fundamentals and you need to get back to basics of like what constitutes good writing because you can lose sight of that sometimes. Mm. I think that if somebody didn't have any understanding of what role-playing is, the best way to explain it to them in a way that doesn't overcomplicate it is to say that it's a collaborative storytelling effort. And so you can get into the mechanics, you can get into the systems and, and likely because we're so familiar with the baseline concept, we likely do get into those mechanics and, and mm -hmm. systems and, and min maxing power gaming. And I think if you go too far down that road, occasionally you can lose sight of the fact that it is supposed to be a collaborative storytelling effort. Perfect. I was going to say that exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, it, we, you can lose sight of that. And I think that, I mean, hell to even to their, to the detriment, some marketing on wizard side has lost sight of that. I remember seeing this ad campaign that was trying to encourage people to DM more because they needed more DMs at, at mm -hmm. events and, and conventions and shit and trying to get more people interested in the DMing aspect. And I thought that the ad campaign was a total failure because it said if you, it was a cool tagline, which was, if you're going to have, if you're going to have a party of adventurers fighting an ancient dragon, would you rather be the adventurers or would you rather be the dragon? Right. Ooh, that, ooh, that's pretty good. But that also loses sight of the collaborative element of it and turns it into something that's adversarial. And I think, yep, and I, I really don't like DMs that are adversarial to their players. Any more yeah. than I like DMs that are just trying to be a uh, Santa Claus, right? Like just, hey, I'm your buddy. I'm a party member, basically. It's like there needs to be some adversity. And so if you lose sight of the fact that it is a collaborative storytelling effort in the way that the best way to probably explain it to somebody is like, it's a lot like improv. You know, just you're riffing off of each other in some way. And there, sure, there are rules and mechanics that govern what's appropriate because there there needs to be some rules that exist independent of the collaborative story playing storytelling effort to kind of anchor it in some sort of objective measure of success and failure. But ultimately that's all it is. And so for people that don't understand that, they just go, okay, like that's just what it is, right? And you explain it to them in a way that's just like, you were responsible for a single character. This is a asymmetrical rule set. You have different rules than I do as the game runner. You are responsible solely for your character and their actions in an environment that I create and populate. And so that's a, that's an asymmetry in the power balance, but you have rules and the rules are there to ensure that I can't just decide anything and everything is, is the way that I want it. And frankly, if you're not looking at it as an adversarial 
situation, then why would you want to do that? Right. You want somebody mm-hmm. that wants to be part of your game. And if you're just trying to hammer the fuck out of them all the time, if I were teaching someone to box, I wouldn't just wail the shit out of them all the time. Right. <laughs> I, I would give them some semblance of a challenge on my skill or whatever if they didn't know anything and try to help them get better and then they would get better. And then we would both enjoy ourselves more because I'm not just beating up on somebody that's no competition for me. And they're not just getting the shit kicked out of them all the time. Uh, Mm. Maybe I'm missing some key element that I think is fundamental that you (coughs) can elaborate on. So my, from the, the amount that I've grown and gotten into the hobby, my whole thing is, is, the game master, the referee, the dungeon master, whatever you want to call them, is either reading from or has created a spec script mm-hmm. for a movie. And the players are the actors that he's now hired to flesh out his script and make it, you know, the final draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have one guy that's feeding you the scenes, feeding you this world, feeding you the story of the movie, and you're helping him fill in the blanks. Now, I'm a big uh, proponent of saying I love also, I love the storytelling. It is my favorite thing about the hobby, the uh, community, you know, the community of it. And of course, you know, the group making a story together. But I also like it because it's a it's a game. I really like the game aspect of it. And there are some people out there that they're just in it for storytelling. They really want storytelling. So they play narrative games, which are very minor rules just little things here and there if they have to roll if they have to roll more than five times per game they get pissed that's fine if that's what you're into that's totally cool there's some people that want to roll for every little thing uh to try to make it as real as possible also very cool i just want a good feel that is still a game but the story in in totality 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 Totality. is the end goal uh that's my thing. And I would just agree with you that role-playing games is just that. It's a group of friends getting together, creating a story, and just having fun with it. Uh, getting into it is one of the hardest things. It seems super easy right now. You can go on any Discord forum or internet forum, and you can find games just fucking anywhere playing online. But coming from somebody that's done it a lot, just joined games, I've quit more games than I'm in right now or have been at one time. And I've played in a lot of games all at one time. Because that's just it. You got to find that niche that you're looking for. Do you want more story? Do you want more mechanics? Do you want it to be more strategic, a board game? Uh, But... If you want to get into tabletop RPGs, you just got to realize that a lot of people do. They just want the, they want the freedom of doing whatever they can instead of playing a video game that just kind of pushes you forward into a story. You have the freedom to, if you wanted to, you could turn 90 degrees and it becomes a totally different thing. That's a, a pretty good point is I think that, you know, the analogy to a spec script is at least one element of it but i think the distinct difference is is that the actors in a spec script are not free in any way to divert to to direct the story in a way that they want and so Mm -hmm. i think that's a key element to role-playing games is that your characters can 
they, they do exist in a set. And so the more you can create a sandbox as a DM where they have a variety of options, but still need to be within some structure of a plot, that is ideal. Um, that said, I firmly believe that one of the biggest prohibitions against players getting into it is almost the overwhelming freedom of having total say and control. And so that all depends on whether a player like revels in like being creative and can just be like, so I can just be whatever I want. Yeah. Just come up with a backstory and talk about your, oh, but like some people are like, well, like what, what do, what do people do? Like, what are some options? You know, it's like, mm -hmm. okay. You know, like maybe you need some kind of filler options, you know, and you kind of lay out the, the options and then they build toward that. I mean, people are identify with archetypes. And so you could say like, well, what type of character you could, what type of character do you want to play? Then you could start there for somebody that's maybe a little more, um, uh, you know, a little less wrangled in their thinking. They're like, oh yeah, I got this idea for a character and like grew up a farmer and like this, that, and the other, and like, you know, da, 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 and you go, okay, then what, what sort of options in the, the rule set here make sense for you and kind of work that way, work inductively. Here's the general concept. All right. Well, you say you kind of grew up as like a farm boy, so you're probably going to be pretty strong and, and, you know, so characters that kind of are strong tend to kind of fall into these classes, or you could conversely do it the other way and be like, here are some archetypes. The rogue is a sneaky kind of stealthy guy and the, and the wizard is like an academic and he, you know, is, is bookish and learns magic. And the, you know, the ranger is like an outdoorsman, a huntsman. And, and then they go, okay, I have these archetypes now. And then they can kind of build toward like that archetype, build a personality and a backstory that kind of builds toward that archetype and bolsters it. And that really just is dependent on having somebody that understands and remembers what the fundamentals of the game are about and try to remember the way in which they got their head around it instead of assuming that we do this a lot with kids is we forget what it was like to be teenagers and, and, yeah. and we assume that like, you know, we try to try to treat like teenagers or people in their twenties. Like, why can't they just be like me? It's like, well, cause I'm fucking 40 years old, right? Like it's <laughs> try to remember the mindset of somebody that when this thing yeah. was new to them, like, how did you wrap your head around it? And then is this person more or less similar to you? You have a lot of experience. If you're trying to teach them a game, you, you, you could get turned off swiftly by somebody that doesn't understand what might get you interested in a game, in a movie, in a book, whatever it is, is like, you're trying to get into a hobby, you know, it's like, you mm -hmm. know, somebody that's just like, Hey, you want to go bowling? And you're like, yeah, sure. I, I've never really bowled before. Like, oh, I could get into it. And it's like, oh, like, you know, you know, like if you don't help them and kind of maybe like teach them like why it's fun and kind of get them into the elements that you like, you just let them bowl next to you. Then they're probably going to be like, eh, I'm not really into this. Or maybe they will, maybe they'll just get into it on their own, but you have to know that. And I think that that's, it, you can't remember that or know what someone might need to get interested in the game if you don't remember what the core of it is supposed to be about. And I think we already touched on that. Perfect. Well played, well said. I think, uh, Joel, that is 
exactly what you needed to hear. So let's move away from that and let's go ahead and get into our main topic. Now, Dave, have you ever looked at what the actual definition of the rule of cool is? Let me read you an excerpt here. Okay. The rule of cool is a principle that says the limit of a group's willing suspension of disbelief for any given element in a story is directly proportional to its awesomeness. In the context of role-playing games, this is translated into two concepts. Player characters should be allowed to attempt especially cool actions, generally not allowed by the rules of a game. Mm -hmm. In such cases, the GM or group collectively may need to make ruling on how such an action should be uh, educated. Adjudicated. Thank you. I said, that's what I said. Groups can use, number two, groups can use judgmental resolution to rule that especially cool actions succeed, even if their game usually requires a form of random resolution, Mm -hmm. e.g. rolling dice. This is related to the concept that success and failure should both be interesting, in that failure is not considered interesting if the alternative is sufficiently awesome. That's a pretty good definition. Yes. So... Uh, I don't know. I think you're a little bit more. No, well, here, let me say that I am way more lax when it comes to the rule of cool. I love the fucking rule of cool. Um, but you know, I gotta say over the years, Dave, you've become quite the fan of the rule of cool sometimes. I think it has its place. I, I will say that. Yeah. Um, however, I think part of the reason that I wanted to talk about this is that I think that there is some cautions to using it mm. and and i think that those are worth illuminating i mean in a i think that that was a much more sophisticated definition than i probably would have come up with which i probably would just say something like when is it okay to break the rules in the moment to allow something that seems pretty cool right mm-hmm. like and admittedly cool is subjective but what you have to remember is that if Failure or success is all predicated on whether it is dramatic. And if it's dramatic and has some flair and panache to it, then that generally is incentive for characters to do what is already part of a role-playing game, which is to test out the limits of the world and test out, you know, different ideas and different concepts and not just play it like a strategy board game, right? Where it's, it's tactical, it's strategic. I, you know, I love chess, but I don't like it for the same reasons that I like D&D. D&D is, is, is more creative endeavor. Yeah, it's just, I wanted to say something like that. Sometimes back in the day when a player couldn't show up, we'd have risk night. We would play risk mm-hmm. instead of D&D. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you were really in for D&D and it was just like, oh, well, risk, okay. It's not the same, but sure, let's go ahead. Let's go for it different things i mean there is elements Mm -hmm. of what is appealing about risk uh as there are to what's appealing about D &D, but they just they kind of scratch different inches you know Mm -hmm. and i think as far as the rule of cool goes my biggest reservation about using it too frequently is that well twofold one rulings in the moment If you're going to suspend the use of a rule, how does that affect 
the rest of your game for cohesion's sake. Can I do X? X is not really allowed in the rules. But man, wouldn't it be cool if I could do that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it'd be pretty cool. But here's the thing is it, it's, it's just like, you know, the rules are like law and you set a precedent that something is allowed and you go, okay, the, I'm allowing it here because I think it's cool. But then at what juncture does, what is the threshold for which how cool something needs to be to suspend the rules? Because let's say the coolness level is a 10 here. Well, mm. what about when it's a nine? Does this, does this say a scenario that's similar, but it's not quite as cool. It's like a seven. What about a six? You know, like then, then mm. you get into like, are the players now trying to change the rules to allow yeah. them to do something that the rules never intended them to do? That's the first big problem. And that's a mechanical strategic problem that is created by allowing something that would otherwise not be allowed. I don't think that's the biggest issue though. The biggest issue is the second problem, which is it's the same problem that we have with social media, with video games, with so basically anything that is like awesome. Food, we have this problem with food. It's just like when there's too much of something that's let's call it a uh, hyper normal, super normal in some way, something that stimulates you in a way, arouses you in a way that is just like at the top of the scale. What it does is it makes everything that's not at the top of the scale just seem like trash, right? Like you eat too much mm -hmm. chocolate cake and try to eat an apple and it'll taste like garbage to you. Just like garbage because you're used to fucking chocolate cake. And that's just like, so the more you use the rule of cool, the more it amps up, it kind of it diminishes the quieter moments of the game, the little interactions between PCs and NPCs, the, the moments that are significant, but maybe are high dramatic stakes. So I think the, that's a big issue. And so the question you need to ask when you execute, if the question I ask, and, and as a question to you, I want to go, what was the question you asked? But what I ask myself is how important is it that there is a moment of high drama when the, when the plot culminates in a way that it is dramatic and the, and the, and the rules kind of don't jive with that. I think when those two overlap, when it's like, it would be highly dramatic for plot purposes, the end of a chapter or an act or however you break things down and it, and you want like a big moment and it's not encapsulated in the rules. It's a cliffhanger for a, for a session at the end of act two, where it's like this character goes to do a huge heroic thing. And the rules don't allow for it. So it just kind of ends up being like this big wet fart Then, then you can mm -hmm. suspend it and go like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to fucking allow that. Or, or I want to yeah. reward that creativity of doing something. That's when I choose to allow it. I, I, do you have other circumstances where you choose to, what's your governing like to parabola intersection that allows you to say like, yeah, do that. My big one is, is when, cause I have an idea of all sorts of shit. Whenever I come in, come up with a scenario, I think it, you know, like 4d chess almost when shit's going around, when I create it, not when I'm playing in it, but when I create it, I have all these things that they, the players could do usually because I'm you and I, we GM a lot of light. We usually give the flavor text of what the players are doing mm -hmm. unless they decide that they want to. Uh, but when they come up with something 
that is just so crazy that I was just like, holy shit, I never even thought of that. You know what? Yeah, fucking let's do it. Yeah. That's my thing, is when they come up with something totally fucking just crazy go nuts. That seems, you know, when I hear it, I'm like, that could work. Let's fucking do it. Yeah, I think there's also a distinction to be made between if a player, sometimes players will say, here's the thing I want to do. How would that work? And if you hear that thing and you're like, man, that's, that's pretty nice, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know that the rules don't really allow for it or they make it, the rules make it prohibitive in some way for the player to do it. That if you likely tell them the actual rules that govern it, it is going to deter them from doing it because they have a different way of doing it. Then I think that's fine to fudge the rules, to fudge them mm -hmm. and be like, you know what? I think under these circumstances, I can, it, it because it alleviates both of the problems that I'm saying is that the players are thinking that this is a moment of high drama and they want to think in a heroic fashion, in a fortune favors the bold kind of way. So if they're already thinking that way, then you want to incentivize it. And I think it doesn't break the, the precedent rule setting thing because you're making, you're letting them know that this is a unique scenario. That's, that's scenario one. The other one is when the player has something in mind, some sort of thing in mind that some way to use a mechanic in the game in a different way. I think you need to be a little more careful with how you allow that because whether they, whether they're aware of it or not, we all kind of naturally gravitate toward scenarios that would be favorable to us. And so. Uh, I remember having this argument with my cousin one time about why is intimidation a charisma based skill? I'm a Goliath. I'm seven foot four and 298 pounds. You're trying to tell me that I can't use strength to intimidate people. I'm like, no, there are scenarios where you could use your strength to intimidate people. But as a general rule, your size and your strength don't necessarily have a lot to do with how forceful your personality is. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. that's just not the case. You know, I, I'm constantly telling people that they're like afraid of me and like that I'm intimidated. I'm, I am not an imposing man by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, and I've known plenty of guys that are just, you know, really big guys, but they're just great big teddy bears. And so people aren't really like afraid of them or, or cowed by them in any way. So I'm like that, that jibes. I'm not saying that there aren't situations where you could use your intimidation with strength. That's a perfectly good example of the rule of cool, but you have to understand that I'm not going to let you gain that in some way. It's not like I'm going to let you use strength as intimidation. And now intimidation is a strength based skill for you. It's like, it is still a charisma based skill and there needs to, you need to do some kind of clever work, but that's a good example because if you use the rule of cool there, he says, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like yell in this guy's face and I'm going to reach out and I'm going to slam down with my strength and smash this fucking table in half. And, and I'm going to use intimidation and my strength. And if I smash the table in half, then he's scared of me and he does what I want. Okay. Let's just say we think that that's a cool use of it and we allow it. And then another guy is intimidated. I'm going to break this fucking barrel over my knee and like, it's like, and you go like, well, no. And you go, he, well, he 
legitimately goes, well, why not? I did it before with the table and it worked. And you go, okay, well, that was kind of a unique circumstance. It's like, well, surely it's not any less cool now than it was then. And so players will always advocate for something like that because he has high strength mm -hmm. and not high charisma because you can't, you can't have yeah. it all. You can't be, you're trying to shoehorn a charisma based thing and just saying like, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I had an argument with Rob about this before too, about how, um, most fear effects go against your wisdom. And he was playing like a barbarian or a fighter or somebody who had low wisdom. And he was like, you know, I just don't think that like, you know, a battle tested warrior like this would, you know, turn, turn tail and run where like a cleric who is not as formidable in battle would have a better chance of not being cowed by this. And I'm like, it's mental resolve. Mental resolve mm -hmm. rarely has anything to do with how competent you are at a given thing. I mean, just look at the guys that by that same logic, the big tough guys that come back from war in Afghanistan should have a less chance of having PTSD than any than a guy like me going off. And we just know that that's not true. And so I think that that's the big caution that I would, is there any other cautions that you think of, of when you consider it? Maybe this is, maybe these cautions haven't occurred to you and it's, it's precisely why you're a little more lax with it than I am. No, uh, I do. And, uh, I usually try to make it very vocal when somebody comes up with it. I'm like, that was a great idea. Let's go with it. And if somebody like, cause I've had it plenty of times where somebody right afterwards, just like, Oh, well I fucking pulls a rope out of my ass and swing like a monkey through the jungle. Like, Oh, I don't know. Hold on. Yeah. You know, tone it down, dude. Yeah. You know, a good idea at the time is cool. Just fucking run with it. I'm not every fucking asinine idea that you come up with. I'm not going to go with it every single time, but in that moment, it was cool. It was fucking awesome. And luckily now some games, even D and D now they're trying to reward you with a mechanic. You do something cool, take some inspiration, mm -hmm. have a Benny, have a hero point, you know, a fate chip. Like a lot of games are doing that because they want that rule of cool, but this time it's actually become a mechanic now. Yeah. Instead of you as the game master, just saying, in reality, that would not really work, but in an action movie, that would be really fucking dope. So let's go ahead and do it. That's a good measure if it would look cool in an action movie or some sort of arrow lens, washbuckling. Yeah. So like you can suspend your disbelief. However, I think that there's a big like if you're allowing increasingly zany things, then then the campaign can become uh, occasionally cartoonish. And, yeah. and you don't want that. You don't want it to be cartoonish in, in some way where it's like the characters or players are constantly just trying to think of end arounds and, and crazy yeah. zany things. Well, just like I was talking before about my, my idea of what role playing is, I still want it to be a game. I still want there to be rules against me that says that I can do something. Because as I said, I want to be able to work work it out that I can get around it by using rules that work with it and you can overcome the obstacle that it is. <clears throat> but every now and then you just have this awesome time of drama where you, for some reason you've never been the vocal one in the group and you come up with this great scene in this act that you just do where it's just like, you know what? Fuck it, dude. Don't even roll. Just, yeah, you do it. There's, yeah, we had a couple of, uh, we had a scenario like that last night where 
in uh, Salonka Pass, the Forcullus is supposed to just kind of lift as you approach to kind of create that like eerie atmosphere. And I was like, I wonder how they'll deal with this. You know, and, and very easily could have been like, well, just like you and Patrick together can probably lift this thing. Mm -hmm. It was cooler just to have like Mike do it on his own, right? They're like, ah, oh, like this yeah. one dude. It's like, try to think of like in Conan the Destroyer when they go down behind the waterfall. Oh, Conan failed his strength check, so he just can't bend those bars. I guess they just have to figure out another way around. It's like, eh, you kind of want to have things that are barriers, but uh, I think another key to the use of the rule of cool is tempering it with giving certain players a, a time to shine. Anytime yep. they can have a spotlight on something that makes their character unique. Um, hey, I'm a dexterous monk guy. I want to try to like, I want to try to pull a fucking matrix move here and like run up this wall, or whatever. It's like, well, that's a very mm -hmm. monk thing to do and not necessarily within the purview of the rules. A lot of things that are in the rule of cool, at least for me, are not things that are explicitly allowed, but that the rules are silent about. And I think it's a good, a good area to be in is if the rules are silent about something and there's some ambiguity that I follow the kind of constitution's rules, which is if it's not specifically prohibited, then in some fashion it should be allowed. And so it's doesn't need to be specifically enumerated for you to be able to do it. And sometimes if your group is the kind of group that thinks in those terms and is prepared to like, I mean, we saw it last night at the Fort Cullis. It was like, okay, so I'm going to do a strength check and that, that that's what I'm going to do. And I'm like, well, you could just like, what is your strength score? Like, it's just, you should be able to just lift this if your strength score mm -hmm. is high enough. Or if you compound it with someone else's strength scores, you and Patrick together can lift 1300 pounds or whatever. And the portcullis weighs less than 1300 pounds. So you can lift it like no role necessary, but there, if your players are in that mindset of existing within the, the scope of the rules, then I would say that that's probably, you want to, you want to pepper in a little more rule of cool, let the players know like, Hey, you know, in this particular instance, I'm, I'm going to just allow this to happen. Um, for, for, you know, as long as you don't go like that one guy in the question for narrative purposes, that's the danger is that you want to, the rule of cool is supposed to empower players. Yep. So it doesn't yep. apply to GMs. It's supposed to empower mm -hmm. players to do things that everyone will enjoy thinking about, like visualizing in their head, um, things that allow the other characters to have like respect and admiration for their cohorts because they're. They got some flourish, but if they're constantly doing these things, then, then, like I said, it just gets kind of cartoonish and it, and it doesn't allow for smaller feats of, of, uh, role-playing or, you know, use of the mechanics in a good way to, to shine. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Jesus Christ. We're both coughing like crazy. Oh, uh, another one, <coughs> excuse me, that, uh, don't let other players tell you that wouldn't work uh because i've had it before where i have played the uh the fighter the uh the guy that jumps off a cliff trying to drive an axe into the forehead of you know of a giant and you know i jump from a height that's like 25 feet 30 feet high but the only thing he can think of is burying this axe into the forehead of this giant mm -hmm. 
and other players have been like dude you would like you would break your legs it's just like yep yeah, so shut, shut up dude just let's do something cool you know think of it just like that in a movie where you see the dude the soldier running up and jumping off this cliff and you know fucking ong box style and just planting his heels into somebody's eyes and then leaping backward falling rolling out of it coming out unscathed ready for round two when really they probably would have shattered their ankles and broken their back when they fell. How strong is the suspension of disbelief? That's yeah. you always see that in movies of characters jumping away from explosions, right? His back would be all burned up. And it's like, yep. to a certain degree, we want some of that, but like, you need to decide where that line is. I don't want to play in the fast and the furious, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. you're in a car and it goes 500 feet down. And it's just like, and they just get out there. Oh, crazy right yeah, like oh, oh are, you, are you all right yeah, i feel better actually you know it's like <laughs> like that's not the kind of there needs to be stakes and there needs to be consequences and the cost mm -hmm. of failure sometimes the rules allow for something fairly straightforward that you almost feel is some sort of a cop-out you go like oh like for instance i don't think there is anything in the rules that if a monster pushes a like a pc it pushes you 10 feet you go okay it pushes you 10 feet that 10 feet pushes you off a cliff i think as far as the rules are concerned you just fall off the cliff and take however much yeah. damage you're supposed to but you kind of go okay well that seems cheap it doesn't seem like maybe they you know i i usually say okay you get like a saving throw like a deck saving yeah. throw to, to grab deck onto save, the ledge yeah. or something or like when um you were falling through the the pit and Patrick's character dove down and like tried to grab your arm. And I made it clear, like there might be some consequences. You might get hurt, you know, but mm -hmm. precisely because you're willing to kind of like put your body on the line to save the leader of the party and take that damage for him instead, then that's what makes it a heroic action. But if it's just like no consequence, it's like, well, I could just do these things all the time and some things are it's a, a matter of suspension of disbelief and what realism you want to have i went over this with uh some things that horses and feed horses need to eat and and they also need to shit mm -hmm. and it's like <laughs> you could get into the oh how much feed do i need like for the horse for like 10 days of travel and then it's like and then I'm bumbling up against the ca carrying capacity with the saddlebags and how much does that slow the horse down it's like dude who cares <laughs> yeah who cares right now now i yeah carrying capacity i think is, is a good example it matters because you don't like mm -hmm. it doesn't make much sense for you to this isn't diablo where you could just have an infinite inventory of stuff you need to make yeah, some, your horse is in your belt pouch yeah it's just, it's dumb right but i even got like beto was caught in that last night he's like why you know i have like five pounds and i'm just like dude just why are you what is on your fucking inventory? Like, I can't care that much about what it is that you're carrying. You can't be carrying so much stuff that it's like overburdening you in some way. Um, horses and feed, carrying capacity. A lot of people just do away with it. Or like, you know, we yeah. recently did away with the whole use an object to draw a weapon. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of finished with that. I just, I, I don't think it's unreasonable unless you're clearly trying to like break the rule where it's like i draw two swords i run up i attack i sheath those swords i i fall back i pull out my bow i shoot two yeah. arrows i put that away and then i get out a healing potion it's like that's a little much but which i think i told you they changed it in the book i didn't even know in dnd &D, that uh your first attack action you can draw a weapon yeah 
as pretty much a free action. Yeah. But of course, any time after that to stow or pull another one is another use object. Yeah. I, I just, I think that that's just overly rigid in mechanics. Like, I think it's, you, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to, if you're dual wielding, pull out two weapons as on whatever. There's no reason you'd have to do the end around that everybody does. It's okay. It's a free action to drop it. I just drop it. It's it's like, well, you should be able to, especially because again, that's not very cinematic, you know, dropping a well, weapon. Well, you know, really, if you think about history, if you were wearing a sword on your back, you would have to take it off and undo it and then she unsheath it, drop the, the scabbard and then go, just dude, shut the fuck up. Just, you draw the sword from your back. Okay. <laughs> or like stowing a shield on your back. Yeah. That's likely to be something like strapping a rucksack to you. But I think it's better to, to think about it the way Link stows his shield on his back. Just like, you know, yeah. it's back there now. It's just like magnetized to your back. Because yeah. getting into the reality of, of that doesn't do anything for the cohesiveness of the world. And that suspension mm -hmm. of disbelief is fine there. But if you abuse that too much, then then the world doesn't tend to feel like it has consequences or like I said, quieter moments of drama where there might be consequences don't really resonate in the same way. I'm a big fan of, I haven't been doing it as much in Curse of Straw, but I'm a big fan of like these little minor things happening like during travel, right? Like in one of my mm. previous campaigns, um, the characters uh, got lice while they were camping <laughs> outside and I just made it fucking annoying for them, right? It wasn't a huge thing, but it was like, they were just like, God, it's fucking annoying. And I'm like, I just keep kept like explaining to them, like, oh, you have armor on, you're trying to sleep outside and you have fucking lice. I'm like, God, what am I going to do about that? Like, I don't know. What are you going to do about it? Like, well, what's going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, like the, those little moments can be cool things so that there's moments of drama that don't involve you diving off a cliff and, and burying your ax in a giant's head. Because if that happens on the regular basis, then it, it's suddenly the norm and not dramatic. And then in order to up the ante, you have to do something that's even more ridic ridiculous than that. Like certain things, uh, the rules are silent on and it's like, well, could you really do that? Can you really grapple a character like two sizes larger than you or, yeah. um, you know, that's so I, I think you, that's the cautionary tale for me there is try to what purpose does it serve? Uh, is it enjoyable for everybody? Does it break the mechanics or set a precedent in some way that allows the players to potentially abuse it? And does it amp up the stakes and in a way that would eventually lead to not being able to enjoy quieter parts of the game? I'm sorry, I had to go back to your. Uh your party got lice thing. <laughs> so one of the things that I really loved about the tomb of annihilation adventure is they had this roll chart of things that happened while they were in the jungle. Now, none of them are supposed to deal damage. It's just supposed to be for added effect. Mm -hmm. Like uh, one is monkeys steal some of your shit. Yeah, it's much. cool. You, you, you wake up in the middle of the night and there's monkeys running away with your shit or, you know, you wake up and you're, you know, covered in mosquito bites and you have the shivers for the day. It's cool. Uh, but one of them, when I rolled it, the first one I did for their first night was that the, uh, the PC wakes up in the middle of the night and a boa constrictor is, ha has him up to his knees in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, you know, this is not supposed to cause any damage. This is just supposed to be fun. So let them just act out what happens. Yeah. And I, when I, when you said that, all I could think of was that shit. Yeah. Because I those, na that. those narrative moments allow you to, 
um, you know, you're, you're like, oh my God, like I grab my, you know, and you can just like have like this cool thing where it's like, I just stab it. Or, uh, I always think of, uh, a good example of that would be, uh, remember where Mac stabs the boar in uh predator and they find mm-hmm. him and they come over. They think that the alien is like coming to get him, And he's like, I got you. I got you. I got you. And then just like, they shine the light on him and it's like a pig. And it's like, you, <sighs> or, uh, <laughs> uh, Zula's character in Conan the Destroyer when they're going through those halls and she suddenly screams out and everyone looks back at her and she's like, there's like a rat and she's like, ah! <laughs> like, like a flavor like that makes, makes adventures feel, makes the world feel like it has texture and it. You don't want to, yeah. you don't want to lose that by just amping up the fucking like dopamine levels, uh, to an absurdly high degree to where if the players aren't like, you know surfing with their shield down a mountainside while swashbuckling a fucking goblin on a sled that it doesn't seem interesting to them because they will just check out eventually and you don't yeah. want to play that game because then it'll just be too too absurd so I, I i think that the three governing rules that that i have are what kind of lead me to the sensibilities that i have about the use of the rule cool mm. i will uh, give some final thoughts here. Cause there's one thing that I have that's backfired on me in the past, uh, which I call the silent rule of cool where <clears throat> in one of my savage pathfinder games, uh, the player, the, the, the PCs were told there was a murder mystery going on and there was a serial killer, uh, in the town. The local constable told them, Hey, keep this on the down low. Please don't let it get anywhere. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, but if you're going to ask around town, just kind of keep it hush hush. We don't want panic in the streets. One of the players, they went to the tavern to talk to uh, a lady and he just kind of blatantly said, there's a serial killer on the loose. And I said that there was some guy sitting next to him on the bar looking over him, you know, with his mouth wide open, just like, oh, and he says, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'll do a, you know, oh, <laughs> funny jokes, jokes, all this and whatnot. I was like, all right, yeah, go ahead and roll a persuasion roll. And in my head, I was just like, "Ah, these guys are the heroes of the town right now. A lot of these guys would just listen to them. The roll doesn't even really matter. I'm kind of just, if they crit failed, then something would happen. But they don't even need to get a four or anything. But he rolls, gets a three. He's like, fuck, I spend a Benny. Rolls again, gets another three. It's like, fuck, I spend a Benny. And he did it so quickly before I could even say, don't worry about it that after he spent his last Benny and still rolled a two, that he was just like, fuck this, I fucked up. Yeah, I fucking suck, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, don't worry about it. You guys are the heroes of the town. It, You're going to be all right. I just wanted to make sure that you didn't crit fail. He's like, well, you should have fucking told me that before I spent all my bennies. I was like, you can have them back. Yeah. But it's just like, don't be quiet about it. Just yeah. let them know, hey, get, go ahead and make a roll. As long as you don't crit fail, you're good. That would be my last uh, things. If you're going to make them roll while using the rule of cool, make sure that you they know that, you know, I'm going to let you roll. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a high DC or as long as you don't crit fail, you're going to be good. Because it's about setting expectations of, of what yeah. the the hinge of failure and success are. Um, and that was a, a high stakes situation, right? Minor stakes situations can matter too. I wasn't even intending last night 
when Chris, I didn't intend on him for necessarily to like be doing roles, like talking to arena, mm -hmm. like I, but, but he just kind of like volunteered and I was like, okay, this can kind of like maybe change the stakes of the nature of this relationship. Um, it was more kind of about communicating her mental state and putting that thought process back in the forefront of the party's mind. It, that's consideration they want to make. Um, but then he did poorly and I was like, huh, how can I have this go awry? And I was, and it dawned on me. I was like, yeah, she, she was unaware that this was like a thing that was on the table. And, and, and that was like a minor, you know, a minor setback, right? Yeah. You don't always want everything to be a big win or a big fail, right? Because an adventure yeah. is made or lost on a series of small, um, small victories and it, you know, and setbacks can add up too. And you want those setbacks and those small victories to be able to add up and not just have it be a do's ex machina where it's like any, you know, oh, like a battle is, you know, through a small series of mistakes or bad rules, the battle is turning against us and we can just necessarily always correct it with one big thing because then it doesn't, because the, the victories don't feel uh, one in any way, because they're, they're the, you know, an adventure is about like small legs of the adventure and things going well and trending up and setbacks and, and you want to have that. And if the players always feel like they're just one cool maneuver away from total assured victory, then it, it kind of removes the, the leg work out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. But I think that's where we are going to end it for this week's episode. Uh, if any of you out there have a topic that you would like for us to uh, go over here on the show, send it to us at inside the GM studio at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if you hate us, if you think we're doing a good job, or if this uh, episode we were coughing and hacking way too much because <laughs> it's getting that time of the season, I guess. But for uh, inside the GM studio, I have been your host, Matt. I am David. Good night.